Hello and welcome to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by Nuoutra, the innovative medical nutrition company dedicated to improving patients' lives through specialised and affordable supplements. My name is Corinne Toyne and I'm a registered dietitian and marketing specialist at HRS Communications. We invite you to drop into the Dietitian Cafe as we discuss the latest nutrition trends, topics and research. Every month, two episodes are released. One is an interview with a featured guest and the other a debate highlighting a hot topic in the world of nutrition and dietetics. However, before I start, can I ask you a huge favour? If you enjoy the Dietitian Cafe podcast, we'd be super grateful if you could press that follow button. More subscribers means more exciting guests and more interesting conversations for you, our listeners. Thank you. So grab a cuppa and join me for today's interview episode where I'm chatting to registered dietitian Tig Bridge all about a really interesting area of dietetics, burns care. Tig's extensive experience includes working with burn survivors in the NHS and at the Katie Piper Foundation Rehabilitation Service. Coupled with her roles lecturing on this subject makes her a perfect guest to explore the role that dietitians play in this area. Welcome, Tig. We're delighted to have you on the podcast. Now I'll hand over to you to introduce yourself a little more. Thanks, Corinne. Um, as you've said, I'm Tig. Um, first and foremost, I'm a busy mum of two uh, children and one Springer Spaniel who's called Welly. Um, but like you mentioned, I've worked in Burns for at least 10 years now um, and been a practicing dietitian since 2011. Um and currently, I'm seconded to a strategic role as an essential nutrition matron at the Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust, where I work. So um, I juggle mum life alongside that part-time NHS role. Um, as you touched on, I've lectured at a number of British universities on burns and complex wounds, um, consult for the Katie Piper Rehab Foundation and I've also written for publication on the topic. Um, I've also been really fortunate to be involved in international and national guideline development for Burns. Um, and I regularly link with European or American colleagues on the topic to make sure that we're collaborating to improve nutrition within this, you know, really important dietetic field. Um, yeah. That sounds amazing. And I personally don't have any experience in burns. So I'm a complete novice and I'm so excited to hear from you about this area. So I think this conversation will be a good one. So before we get started and talking about um, burns and your work, let's get started with a few quick fire questions just to get to know you a little better. It's one of our all time uh, traditions that we love to do here on the podcast. So what is your dream holiday destination? I really would love to go to Argentina and I would love to do a ranch holiday. I'd love to go. Yeah, it's it's quite different, but it's always yeah. been something that I've had on the bucket list, um, but I've just never made happen yet. So I need to start actively making plans to make that happen because I really want to do that. But yeah. That is so cool. How did you even know that that's a thing exists I wouldn't have even uh, do you know I didn't I didn't really I think I've always really liked the thought of I don't know westerns I really like westerns oh. growing up and then I thought well 
why not go somewhere super hot and do that? And then Argentina is just such a beautiful country. Um, I'd hate to put my broken Spanish like <laughs> to good use. So yeah. yeah, it's kind of combining those two sort that of loves really. But yeah. yeah. That's very, very cool. Um, oh, I, I've, if you go, I'd love to see like some photos from from that because that just looks amazing. So oh, yeah, fingers crossed you go you go soon. Thank you. <laughs> no, I need to make some sort of little plans, even if it's just like yeah. a savings account. And... <laughs> exactly, yeah, put a little bit of money away, 100%, yeah. And the second question is, if you could only eat one vegetable forever, what would it be and why? I love, um, I'm really boring, actually. I absolutely love broccoli. Mm. I adore broccoli, be that roasted, be that in soups, the very normal broccoli that I've grown up on um, or, you know, purple sprouting, love, love <laughs> it. I just never really get fed up of it. So, yeah, for me, it'd be broccoli. <laughs> love that. Yeah, very dark, leafy green vegetables, healthy, can flavour yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely love that. Yeah, I was actually having this debate the other day and I couldn't decide between broccoli and carrots because carrots are just... Yeah, I think I might be team carrot. So you can have broccoli and I'll have all the carrots. (laughs) Okay, deal, 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 deal. 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 (laughs) Great, so to kick off the episode, let's now start with some basics in this area. So would you mind explaining to our listeners what is the official definition of a burn? So official definition from World Health Organization is that it's effectively an injury to the skin or tissue, and that can be caused by a number of different mechanisms. So you could have heat, you can have radiation or radioactivity, um, electricity, friction, or contact. And contact generally means with a hot surface of some sort. Um, Now, Thermal injury can also be featured when people are defining burns effectively, and that's usually linked to just one of those mechanisms, so usually to the heat side of things. Um, And I think heat as a mechanism can be a little bit distracting because you can also get burns from cold injuries, Um, so freezing where you can have tissue damage and they're considered burns to a degree. So frostbite, for example, um, that would also come into this um, because effectively you're damaging tissue to and certain layers within the skin, um, similarly to that of a hot burn or hot thermal injury. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for explaining. Um, What is the difference between a burn and a scald? So that's a good question because a lot of people think they're two completely separate things, but a scald is actually a thermal injury. It's hot liquid. So it's a burn caused by hot liquid. Um, So anybody who is scalded is treated under burn services um, Mm -hmm. if it's deemed requiring specialist input, Um, but they're actually two and the same thing. Okay, that's clear. And am I right in saying that burns don't just happen outside of the body? They can actually happen inside of the body too? Yeah, absolutely. So the majority of burn injuries are external. Um, But smoke inhalation, say if somebody has been caught in a house fire or in an environment where there has been a significant amount of smoke, smoke is very, very hot. 
And we ingest, obviously, smoke when we're trying to breathe. And that can cause internal thermal injury, which um, especially in terms of the airway can result in swelling because of the impact of a burn. Um, And the other more common way of having internal burn injuries is electrical. Um, If somebody sustains an electrical burn, so electricians or people hit by lightning, for example, that can cause internal thermal injury um, and often be quite difficult to detect the true extent of the injury on initial assessment. So when you're first presented with a person who's been burned, it's actually quite hard to know how unwell they are on first appearance. It's almost a matter of observing them to see in terms of whether they deteriorate or recover um, to know really the true extent of injury. Mm. That sounds like those patients can be really complex then. Yeah, luckily, um, the smoke inhalation can be, mm, uh, smoke inhalation can occur more commonly because of the nature of house fires or um, explosions at work. That tends to be more common than perhaps electrical. but that's only my experience other people might have had different experience but when there's an inhalation injury usually there's the presentation of soot perhaps on examination and there is a very very swift procedure in terms of supporting someone's airway um, to accommodate for any deterioration because ultimately we want the patient to remain breathing Mm -hmm. um but yeah when it's been something such as the electrical they have to be so closely observed to know in terms of whether the treatment plan needs to be adapted um Mm. and you need to be available to regularly review those patients really because of that unknown okay and when it comes to defining burns is there a universal or uk specific classification system um so to my knowledge there the uk america and the european burn services would use um london browder charts so they're like body map charts they're predominantly used in children um when classifying burns and then there's also the rule of nines which basically assigns a certain percentage in in numbers of nine um, for different body parts for adults. And that's used predominantly for adults. Now, in terms of classification of injury, you would have what we call, a lot of people are familiar with first degree burns, second degree burns, third degree burns, fourth. Now, that's actually an American previous classification system, and that's actually outdated. So, Movies haven't necessarily caught up with that or Hollywood. Um, And what people use now in different services is um, depth of injury. So you can have um, superficial um, injuries. So that could be just reddening of the skin like sunburn. You can then move on to partial thickness. And where things can get a little confusing is well, how deep is partial thickness? That can be the first couple of layers. Um, or it does it go down to muscle, for example? And terms such as superficial partial thickness come in or deep dermal can come in. And then you would have full thickness. 
So full thickness is effectively down to bone. Um, so I personally think it's an easier classification system because it, it, it kind of, it sounds silly. It's, I imagine it a bit like a cake, like it's layers of a cake in terms of how deep the injury can go. Um, but yes, terminology is still, I, when I've worked with a client recently, when I said, could you tell me a little bit about your injuries in terms of how large they were or how severe they were? They spoke to me about them being fourth degree. And I thought, oh, okay, this is interesting because I know where they were treated. And that's not terminology that is used clinically anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think there's still a bit of work in terms of getting that sorted. Okay. So let's move on to the role that a dietitian plays in the care of patients with burns. Do all burn survivors need to see a dietitian? And if not, at which point or with which patients is dietetic input required? Okay, great question. So no, not all burn survivors need to see a dietitian. Depending on the severity of injury, understandably any injury can be distressing for a person, depending on where it sits on the body, it can be quite distressing for the person either psychologically or physically. Um, but in terms of the nutritional implications, we have um, recommendations that any child that has a burn injury that is covering 5% of their body or more, and a percent is actually measurable by the palm of your hand. So, 1% of my body would be equivalent to my, the one palm um, and a child's hand would be their 1%. So 5% and over for children and 10% and over for adults in the UK would be when a dietitian should be informed and be involved in a person's care. Okay, and which hospital wards are these patients typically on? Um, so again, there are different services. Across the UK, there are what we would call uh, facilities, units and centres. Now, they all treat different ranges of injury severity, if that makes sense. But if you're on a, if you're attending a burns facility, you might not have a specific separate burns ward. You might be as part of a, a plastics ward, for example. Um, but the bigger the injury, the more requirement there would be for isolation, perhaps, um, because if you think of the skin as a barrier for any bugs and minimizing Im um, infection, the more skin that is broken and exposed, the, the, the greater the risk of infection to the patient. So you would quite commonly have any injury that is, say, 10% and over, people would usually be seen by a burns unit or a burns centre. Um, approaching certainly the major burn profile where it's 20% and over in adults, um, you know, you would be attending units and centres. You might be on critical care, for example. You might be on a burns ward. Um, if you're on critical care, it could be because your injury is so significant or because you've also had inhalation injury and you have ventilation requirements, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I said at the beginning, um, I don't really have any experience with burns. And so this next question, I think, is going to be quite useful for other people as well that don't haven't really been familiar with the with the sort of um, with the burns area when it comes to dietetics. Mm -hmm. 
Could you explain why there is a need for dietetic input in these patients? So, you know, what what is it that a dietitian brings to the table in, in, in terms of looking after a patient with significant burns? Oh, my gosh. So this is like my favorite question. <laughs> um, we are fundamental. Quite frankly, we should be a part of every burns MDT. Mm-hmm. And for those patients that have their, those um, injuries that I mentioned in terms of the thresholds, we should be involved because burn injuries can elicit a significant metabolic response the bigger the burn, the the deeper the burn, the greater the change in a person's metabolism, the greater stress that a person's body um, feels and is affected by. And this leads to so many nutritional changes within the body because the demand for glucose and protein and micronutrients vastly increases. But a lot of the nutritional processes in terms of accessing and utilizing those nutrients sufficiently is inhibited because the body is under significant stress. Um, It's a cost-effective way of treating injuries and moderating the metabolic response to having such a significant injury. Um, And quite logically, you have a significant injury, you could be in utter horrific pain you're medicated for this pain, which is constipating. So your appetite can be suppressed and greatly impacted by the stress, the constipation, the amount of meds. Your skin is leaking a significant amount of nutrient-rich fluid, which we refer to as exudate. So you're losing protein, you're losing vital um, hydration, you're losing micronutrients so copper selenium zinc for example and a dietitian is fundamental in supporting the wider mdt and the patient to minimize nutritional losses particularly lean protein because our body doesn't logically go great this person has an excess of adipose tissue um i'll just take my my additional calories from there or my additional glucose from there it goes on hyperdrive and it Proteolysis is absolutely sky high. You know, gluconeogenesis is working over time. And so every reserve that we have to provide nutrition is under pressure. So dietitians are there to advocate for early feeding, you know, micronutrient supplementation, thinking about the best ways to meet those nutritional needs along with the patient's wishes and preferences, be that they might be vegan, they might be, you know, having um, diabetes medication that we need to also consider in terms of how tight their glucose control is, Um, and then work around the other interventions that they're going to be having, such as surgery, um, dressing changes. You also want to really support the optimization of rehabilitation as well, and maintaining as much muscle mass as possible. So, I feel we are absolutely fundamental and probably an often overlooked service um, or aspect. There's a great appreciation how fundamental nutrition is, but I don't see that reflected in necessarily the staffing um, Mm. within burn services to provide that vital um, aspect of treatment for burns patients. 
That was absolutely brilliantly put. So I'm, I'm sure everyone listening, if they weren't already, are going to be convinced that a dietitian is, is you know, critical to that MDT on the burns unit. And I was going to ask you as well, I suppose you've commented not just there, but would you say then that it isn't a given that you'd have a dietitian as part of the MDT on a burns unit right now? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. There's, um, I was recently in conversation with some dietitians working up in the north and a lot of the conversation was discussing how to put business cases together because it's almost, um, how can I put it? A, a fraction of the clinical, uh, of the funding that they have for their clinical workloads. Whereas, and it's not reflective of the volume of patients or time that these patients require um, and how can we go about putting business cases together to prove and show how fundamental we are in terms of supporting these patients and supporting these MDTs. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. I think to my to my knowledge, there is two or three full-time Burns dietitians in the UK. And considering that we have a number of centers that care for patients that have complete body burns. Um, it to me is completely inadequate. And I also really, really struggle with the fact that sometimes some services might invest more in adults or pediatrics, and it's not equitable depending on what age you category you fall into. Um, so, no, I really feel that services need to take a good look at what recommendations are for your patient groups and evaluate whether you feel you're delivering on what I personally feel is such a cost-effective nutri- uh, treatment within burn services. Um, I often joke, I suppose, that nutrition isn't often seen as sexy because it's a fundamental aspect of care Mm. that everybody really has a responsibility to optimise. But if it's fundamental, why aren't we we putting money to ensure that it meets the basic needs of these specialist groups? Yeah, you're so right. You're so right. So hopefully anyone's listening right now that is in a, in a position where they feel as though they want to make a business case, you know, hopefully they'll maybe reach out to you or, or this, oh, will give them the, this will give them the confidence to, to take that forward. Or even encourage your Burns clinical service leads to listen to this and uh, yeah. see if it yeah. helps. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So when you first meet a patient with Burns, could you explain to us and our, and our listeners, what does your initial assessment look like? What is the key information that you need to gather? So whenever I have anybody come and want to learn more about burns, I always try to reassure that it's you're following the dietetic care process. You are following what we are all trained to how to conduct our assessments. So you're following that A to F principle. But with regards to making it specific for burns, there's a couple of things that you want to be really making sure you're aware of. So time of injury is quite key because in terms of your requirements, you need to know the date of injury as part of the requirement for calculating energy requirements. Now, time of injury, total surface area affected 
the depth of injury. Um, and then in terms of the mechanism, so the reason I say the mechanism, because, for example, flame injuries tend to be deeper um, than, say, perhaps a scold if there has been good first aid, for example. Now, you also obviously want to know all the, the usual um, factors, so weight, height, BMI, sex, uh, dietary preferences, allergies, any medications people are on. But something I also really want to know about imbalance is, do we have any pre-existing deficiencies um, prior to the injury? Uh, were they receiving any additional supplementation, be that linked to another condition or not? Um, the other thing that is possibly a little more niche, but it's probably an emerging area of research is if you have um, a patient who you would imagine would menstruate, I tend to ask about regular, um, what their menstruation pattern tends to be because with um, stress, the impact on menstruation for people who menstruate is a very unexplored area of burns, but experience is showing that actually periods are taking a lot longer to return post-burn injury. And um, in terms of people's wishes, in terms of, family planning, the implications are really unknown. So that's probably quite a specific thing in terms of critical illness or burns. But additionally, you want to know about any other tissue injury. So you don't want to just be so focused on the burn that you don't then also think about have they had a fall and they've also got, say, pressure damage from a long lie um, or have they had existing pressure damage prior to coming in? Have they got any absorption issues? Because if you're going to be enterally feeding and it can be aggressive in burns, you need to know about absorptive capacity um, or any issues such as reflux or diabetes. Because again, in burns, you need to be tightly controlling glucose um, parameters to optimize healing and, and um, minimizing infection. Then with regards to physical, depending on the site of injury, people might not actually be able to open their mouth sufficiently because of the, their mouth is injured or the skin around their lips is really tight. Can they even physically hold cutlery? People can be bandaged so much that they are physically restricted because of that. Um, so you need to really think about how is one going to feed themselves or are they going to be reliant on others? If so, is enteral feeding required or supplements required to support that? Um, can we get additional snacks? Are carers, supporters available to be able to also uh, bring in food, provide encouragement, laxatives? And I know this is going to sound one of the key things in burns because of how much pain management um, is prescribed and required there is a target really of trying to get bowels open within four days of injury because it's been found that if we're not managing to achieve that, people's oral intake can be significantly affected um, and toleration of enteral feeding, for example, is, is significantly affected. So being really proactive with bowel management 
in burns is also something. So knowing what is regular for them, knowing what is normal for them. Um, do they usually use laxatives at all? If not, okay. Fiber intake is another thing. And then just any sort of psychosocial issues that might inhibit their oral intake um, or their fluid intake um, or any factors that might actually be quite, how can I put it, difficult for you to escalate your nutritional interventions if needs be. Because um, you ultimately need to work with the patient, empower them to access the treatments that are available to them, um, but also highlight the risks if they choose not to be, how can I put it, um, accepting of some of the proposed options. And enteral feeding are, is, is a classic example. A lot of people are fearful, understandably, of being enterally fed. And it's common within burns when you get introduced as the dietitian for people to go, what? Because everybody thinks, oh, they're here to tell me I need to lose weight. Mm. when you explain about the implications you know they can actually be feeling really quite well when they first have a burn injury because their body is in that um ebb phase of the hypermetabolic response where they actually are coping at present with the stress and so they feel relatively well they feel like they'll be able to eat and drink but the evidence says over a certain percentage we should be initiating enteral feeding early. So early is within six to 12 hours of injury. So they might be like sat up talking to you, not a problem. And you're saying we really need to put a nasogastric tube in um, to support you with your eating and drinking because your body's going to be demanding a lot of nutrition. And the negotiation skills that you need to be able to communicate the rationale and the just and justify why is so important because you need to really help patients and their carers understand just how crucial this aspect of their care is. Mm. So sorry, that was a, such a long answer for no, it's question. Really, really interesting. And obviously such a thorough assessment is required before you even get started with their dietary management. And I guess that brings me then to the next question. So you spoke about early feeding, so um, depending on the patient, obviously, but are there anything, is there anything else that you would consider first for the dietetic management? Ooh, so it, you need to obviously bear in mind your the nutritional status of your patient from when they very first come, came in. So have we got somebody who perhaps was undergoing cancer treatment? They had become dizzy, they were making themselves a cup of tea and they'd accidentally spilt the kettle all over themselves through a fall. Um, were they doing really well during their cancer treatment, maintaining their weight, you know, not having episodes of diarrhea and sickness? Or had they actually lost 15% of their body weight during treatment? So you're already coming in nutritionally deplete. So you need to bear that in mind initially. Other factors are, you know, alcohol excess. We need to be thinking about that. Refeeding risk, um, micronutrient deficiencies, tissue integrity prior to the burn injury. but And then uh, anybody who might have glucose management um, 
um, if they're diabetic, for example, what is their HbA1c been like? Vitamin D status is also something that's really integral to knowing about. Um, and then really physical activity comes into play as well, because in terms of whether a person might be have more um, metabolically active tissue or more adipose tissue and be perhaps sarcopenic, you need to take those things into consideration as well, for sure. Mm-hmm. But- and in terms of t- challenges that are unique for burn survivors, what, what would you say those are that in terms of nu- nutritional challenges? Nutritional challenges, I would say, is trying to recoup sufficient protein. I mentioned earlier about in exudate, you lose significant amounts of nutrients. So you lose significant amounts of fluid, (coughs) excuse me, significant amounts of protein and micronutrients. So it's a nutritional challenge I certainly continually find challenging is micronutrient supplementation and knowing what is enough or when is too soon to initiate or not. And managing that alongside monitoring CRP changes as something that massively helps to know whether your micronutrient supplementation is needed or not um, as an ongoing sort of um, dietetic intervention. Another challenge really is, how can I put this, minimizing lean muscle loss without overburdening protein provision because whilst um if you've had smoke inhalation injury um respiratory failure is one common organ failure associated with burns but kidney failure is the second most common and it's because patients tissues become so leaky when they are the bigger the stress of the burn injury fluid leaks from our intravascular system into our tissues, which then obviously leaks out in the exudate. So you can actually become quite internally dry, but edematous because all the tissue is in the, uh, all the fluid is in the tissues. You can be losing fluid through your tissues. So it's that balance of managing hydration, providing a lot of protein to to minimize what is being lost, but also broken down, but to fuel glucose demand. Um, And really patients struggle with the fact that their appetite really often gets switched off or they feel so sick because of the pain and the burn injury. And a nutritional challenge for dietitians is to really empower, consistently encourage patients to maintain a high intake or tolerance of all of the interventions that we're asking of them um, alongside those symptoms and balance not worsening kidney function um, and aiding you know skin healing around the timing to go to theatre because some services might starve their patients while they're in theatre some feed through theatre through a nasogenital tube And it's just having that awareness of all factors to try to manage those challenges. But it's best just to just take them one at a time. Mm. (laughs) It sounds so multifactorial and just shows how much experience you do need in this area before you specialize, because you're clearly an expert in this field and having that 
holistic view on the balance of things, even if something looks a certain way, actually knowing that inside the body, the balances are, you know, off and certain things are happening that you need to be aware of. Um, so yeah, that's really insightful. And when it comes to recovery, so what does that look like for these patients and how much dietetic input is needed during the recovery phase? So recovery is long and slow. The bigger the the bigger the deeper the injury, the longer the recovery. And studies have shown that metabolism can be altered for up to two years post-burn injury. Um so my argument would be that burns dietitians should actually be involved in a burn patient's care for two years post up to two years post injury. Sadly, that's not always the case. Um, and actually, most services, I don't think I know of any real services that offer outpatient care for burn injured people um, post discharge. Um, so that's why the whole Katie Piper work that I do is it's really, it's really important to me because I just see so many patients who are discharged and still struggling nutritionally mm. afterwards because it doesn't just stop once your skin is healed. Your metabolism is taking a long time to recover. Um, and other studies, though, there, there, there are some really good studies by Paul Vishmayer, I think is how you say his name. So forgive me if I got that wrong. Um, he did studies more focused on critical illness, but he touches on people who've had burn injuries and the, the discussion about recovery of lean muscle mass can take up to two to three years post-injury um, because of that impact of intensive care or critical illness on a person's body um and you know that's even perhaps considering the use of anabolic steroids um or propanolol which is you know beta blocker to try to help moderate that hypermetabolism um so yeah i would argue that really and especially for children i don't want to forget pediatrics if they have significant burn injuries when they're young they can um, have stunted growth. It can really inhibit their development. Um, there are studies showing that in DEXA scans, it can affect their bone metabolism and put them at greater risk of brittle bones. Um, so, yeah, my argument would be we should be involved and seeing certainly major burns for up to two years post-injury in both pediatrics and adults. And I know when I went to America and did some shadowing, um, the name has escaped me, it'll come back, Shriners. Mm -hmm. so at Boston Shriners, and I'm sure it's across all Shriners hospitals, they would see their pediatric patients once a year until they turned 18. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of improvements could be made. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's good to know. And you mentioned there about working for the Katie Piper Foundation Rehabilitation Service, which obviously she's quite a well-known figure. So it was quite interesting to hear that you you worked sort of outside the NHS, you know, for this foundation. Could you tell us a bit more about that role and how it came about? Yeah, actually, it came about because when I was working my NHS role, um, I would attend the British Burn Association conferences. Um, and through networking with other 
uh, NHS workers. So there was a lady um, who worked as a nurse um, called Chrissy. Chrissy Styles, who's extremely passionate about burns, um, she ended up working for the Katie Piper Foundation. And it was my first and only experience of really being headhunted. Um, so she went and led the clinical services for the Katie Piper Foundation. And um, they were talking about wanting to offer additional services to their patients who were referred. And they were finding quite often that patients were asking about support with nutrition and weight management um and chrissy said well shall i try and find someone and she reached out to me um so it just goes to show these events um mm. and networking and discussing with other peers and colleagues is really worthwhile because um yeah i don't think that opportunity necessarily would have been advertised perhaps because i think burns is quite a niche field so i think knowing someone and almost, I think, pre-vetting someone in a in an environment where there's other passionate um, people about burns, I think that's probably how I ended up getting approached. But that's, that's how it came about. And I'd okay. be quite outspoken at the conference as well when people were presenting. I would go, "What what nutritional implications did you consider? You know, what impact did dietetics have on your on your outcomes?" And you could see people being like, "Who is this?" Like, <laughs> but it's the way that you start to make nutrition have a mark, right? So Definitely. I think being a bit gobby probably helped. <laughs> well, I think a lot of dietitians, we, 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 we don't, so we forget that we are the experts in, in this field, you know, nutritionists and dietitians, we are the registered, you know, experts to be talking about nutrition. And so I really do think we should shout about that more. So yeah. And challenge. And yeah. challenge. Because I think sometimes we just let people talk about the medical or the surgical or the nursing aspects and don't get me wrong I wanted to learn about all of that but I also wanted to know what was relevant to dietetics as well so yeah you know, I think people see me and think oh gosh I better mention something about nutrition <laughs> <laughs> no good for you and you said you went to America as well that sounds interesting did you do some shadowing yeah so uh 2015 I got something called a Roosevelt scholarship um which is wow. a Nottinghamshire sort of um local scholarship where I was able to take a work related project um to the states so I went to North America and I went to I think it was about 13 different states I also went to Canada um wow looking at how the burn care practice from a dietetic perspective and also pressure ulcer management was another wing of it. Um, how that was managed basically differently in American services or Canadian services compared to the Brits. Um, and it's actually on that trip that I started to have a real interest in vitamin D in burns and I suppose critical illness and rehabilitation. So um, it sparked yeah, it, it it sparked a lot of thoughts and certainly made me more open to getting involved in research and mm. um, service improvement and shouting up a bit because in terms of, I suppose, shouting up about our profession, I, l I learned that they're not afraid to shout up over there for sure. <laughs> Love that. That's, that's great to hear. And so obviously you just spoke about that research there. 
Could you tell us which guidelines are available for healthcare professionals working within the field of burns? And is it an area where there's lots of research or do you think it needs to be studied further? So to answer the first part, there's an ESPEN endorsed paper by um, a person called Russo, um, and that was out in 2013. And uh, word on the street is that there's going to be an, an updated version imminently. Um, but sort of that is an absolute key document, in my opinion. Um, it kind of really advocates for that increased protein provision, early enteral feeding, you know, it also talks about um, proportions of um, macronutrients in terms of en total energy provision. So, for example, 50 to 60 percent being from your um, glucose source, so your carbohydrate source and limiting total fat to less than 30 percent. Um, and it will also talk a bit about vitamin and trace element supplementation, blood glucose control. That That is an absolute key document there's also been a paper by um burger et al in 2022 i think it was and that was in clinical nutrition and that's about um micronutrient um micronutrient supplementation i think i think is the title so excuse me if that's not accurate um but that also has many points within it that discusses about specific micronutrient recommendations for burns, um, which is is quite a murky area, shall I say. Um, then with regards to sort of any other resources, you can go to the British Burn Association, Katie Fiper Foundation website. Um, Dan's Fund is a burns charity as well. You can go to the American Burn Association, um, and there's also the European Burns Association and International Society for Burns Injuries is another one. Mm -hmm. um, but to answer your question about research, I have many passions when it comes to burns and this is another one. So nutrition research within the burns field is quite old. And what I mean by old is it's entering into sort of the 20 to 30 years field. There were dietitian so mark windle he put out a lot of papers when he worked in burns um there's also some dietitians in the in in america so papers by beth shields or kathy prelap they're putting out burns nutrition uh research but it is in much need of boosting because Nowadays, and this goes back to the business case side of things, all people want are evidence of outcomes and effective uh, influence on outcomes, be that patient, be that clinical, uh, proms, prems. And we can't demonstrate necessarily how effective and fundamental nutrition is nowadays because the research isn't necessarily there. Um so something that I would really encourage any person that's working with burns, um, burn injured people, is link with your universities, university students. If you have limited capacity as a, as a clinical professional to undertake burns research because you're not sufficiently funded, burns um, universities usually are accepting of um, final year project titles. And it's one way that 
we've consistently be able, been able to undertake some research within Burns um, through linking with our universities and hoping that a student might select it and be interested because it just adds a little bit of extra help in terms of undertaking it. Um, mm. And it's great, great experience in terms of supporting a student with undertaking that research. So it, I genuinely, that's sort of one way or NIHR applications or, you know, it's a common yeah. opportunities, but yeah, it's needed. It's absolutely needed. That's some great bit of advice there. I can imagine that making a really good dissertation for many students would be so interesting. I have a list. So if there are any universities that want some <laughs> titles, I have lots. Um... Brilliant. What a great call to action. There you go. <laughs> so there, um, in terms of opportunities for dietitians, what particular skills do you think a dietitian needs in order to work in this area? Oh, that's a lovely question. The ability to communicate, the ability to, I suppose, emotionally, and I mean this in a a nice way, emotionally detach from what can be quite significant and traumatic injuries to be present for the patient that you're caring for um, while still being empathic. Empathic? Empathetic? You can choose. Um, (laughs) Because you're going to deliver the best care by not being too emotionally affected by what has happened to the person. Um, I'd say resilient is also another another characteristic. And we hear that so much in the NHS, right? But I would say that within the field of burns comes a lot of trauma, comes also a lot of abuse. And you can be disproportionately exposed to hard hitting um, scenarios that certainly can be difficult to process. A lot of burn services, if you're working within them, has a psychologist available for staff. Um, But a certain amount, amount of emotional resilience or at least some strategies that help you process that um, would be good. Negotiation skills, communication skills, And I really, really emphasize a curiosity, um, a a persistent curiosity in terms of what is the best thing to be doing for our patients. As I've said, nutrition research in this field is, is old. So a curious mind in this field is so needed to undertake further research and to just really push the level of care that we deliver to this patient group um, and and the ability to speak up and not be afraid to sort of blow the trumpet of dietetics and advocate for your patient's needs. There's been occasions where the whole MDT hasn't agreed that we should enterally feed a patient, for example. And you have to sometimes go against the grain to do what is best in your view for your patient because as you said earlier Corinne we are the experts in our field and they may not have fully appreciated the bigger picture in terms of the interventions in the short term so it's for us to educate the wider MDT but also advocate for our patients yeah I love that we've spoken a little bit there about how students can get more experience but what if 
you know, there may be a sort of you know a band five or even a band six, even band seven or, or higher dietitian listening right now that's thinking they'd love to change course and maybe get some more experience in in burns care. What would you recommend? How could they actually pursue that opportunity and and learn more, but also get some more experience? So I'm a massive advocate of shadowing. I think there's nothing better than rolling with another person on their day to day and seeing exactly what happens. Um, and I'm also a bit of a have a go person. Um, obviously not just, just jump in totally on your Todd, but if you wanted to facilitate regular shadowing, discuss that with your line manager, discuss the benefits of actually what, what benefits does it bring to the service? So for example, a lot of principles that you would learn in burn care would actually have an implication on how you support critically ill patients or patients with wound injuries, for example, or complex wounds. So it, there are benefits to services from people and working within burns. Um, but contact contact other services. So there's services, they're probably going to kill me, but Chelmsford, there's Newcastle, there's Manchester, there's Birmingham, there's Nottingham. Um, there's so many different places. There's, you know, Chelsea and Westminster. And if you were to say, may I come and shadow you, actually that collaborative learning and clinical supervision, I think is an aspect of dietetics that sometimes gets lost in such pressurized mm -hmm. clinical services. That's the best way to learn, in my opinion. Um, there's a Manchester, there's a university course, a Manchester Burns course, that if but it is very much geared to medics and nurses is my personal opinion um but from a dietetic perspective um going and shadowing and maybe i'll try and organize a dietetic course at some point <laughs> we'll, that'd be we'll amazing that <laughs> that'd be amazing and would you say that the more that we can give people experience in shadowing that could potentially increase or help to increase opportunities by having more people interested in the field. Absolutely. And I think having, uh, facilitating shadowing, absolutely. Guest lectures, for example, be that what you're doing here, hosting the podcast, um, you know, and asking questions about this field. This is something that's accessible. Um, I think also teaching it in universities. Um, not all universities teach about burns and complex wounds that is something that can be a part of, you know, the training of all of our profession. So, but, and also connecting. I, I think the other thing to really ask people who are listening, if they're interested, is to reach out to a dietitian you know is working within Burns and saying, I'm interested in this. Is there a network? Because there is an established um, teams group of dietitians all working within Burns who are now really supporting guideline development. We've just had um, the Burns standards, burn care standards and outcomes be reviewed. And whilst there's three people that have been attending the regular meetings, they have actually been tapping into this network of British dietitians who are working with burn individuals to ensure that the changes within the document are as robust as they possibly can be and uh, rep, um, replicatable and, you know, appropriate as they can be. So always ask and reach out to people. Don't 
sit and be quiet. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <Yeah>. My advice. It's <laughs> good advice. Good advice. Before we finish up, if listeners are feeling inspired following our chat and they're keen to learn more about this area. So we've spoken about getting experience and, you know, reaching out to people, which I think is absolutely fantastic advice, but where would be a good first point of contact if they wanted to first learn a bit more about this area, where would you direct them? I would direct them to the British Burn Association webpage because that has a wealth of information about burns as a whole. I would also say the ESPEN guidelines And then in terms of connecting with other dietitians, the critical care specialist group on the BDA, there is a subgroup that has burns. In terms of how active it is, I can't say over the last year because of being on my secondment, but I would say contact some of the burn centres. So Birmingham is a burn centre, for example. You could contact Nottingham, uh, the person who's working in um, my backfill for the moment, Rosie, she's knows the whole network of Burns UK dietitians. So she, she would be able to also sort. Um, but yes, or Twitter. I know that sounds silly. Twitter is an amazing way of professionally stalking anyone. Um, yeah. and if you were to put hashtag Burns, hashtag dietitian, can anyone put me in touch with someone? A lot of professionals are on Twitter as well. It's not Twitter anymore, is it? It's X. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can connect in a multitude of ways. Um, so LinkedIn, X. Yeah. Um, Instagram. As I say, yeah. There's a lot. The Katie Piper Foundation as well. So mm. you get a lot of patient stories um, and understanding from the Katie Piper Foundation, which is, again, invaluable. Yeah. And are there any events coming up in the new year that people should be aware of or any that you're attending that maybe, you know, you would recommend? Well, the well, I don't think so. But the, the <laughs> one that is Burns Awareness Day um, is always the 11th. I think it's the 11th of October every year. It certainly falls in October every year. Mm-hmm. Um But no, in terms of events at the moment, no. <laughs> My calendar well, is yeah well we'll keep an eye out um but that was all absolutely brilliant advice so thank you so much and thank you also for coming on to this podcast today it was so great to learn about burns care and your role as a dietitian in this field thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure and a huge thank you to Noucha, of course, for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend or colleague who you think might find it interesting. Our next episode of the Dietitian Cafe will be out very soon. But in the meantime, you can check out our previous episodes or head over to our RD2B Dietitian Cafe podcast, where once a month, our student dietitian host discusses the world of dietetics with a range of guests, all aimed at aspiring dietitians. Thank you for joining us at the Dietitian Cafe. See you next time.